You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast with Pastor Daniel Williams as we go through a series called God Redeems, a study through the book of Exodus. If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 20 is where we find ourselves in this series of God Redeems, and that's exactly where the Shekinah glory is meeting Moses the leader and giving him his word to the nation of Israel and the Ten Commandments. The series is called God Redeems. I hope you're starting to see a little bit of picture of not just the nation of Israel being redeemed, but how God could redeem us, free us, work in our lives, because he's the same God that works yesterday, today, and forever. And we're in this section of the book where really God is giving the people, the nation, a constitution, his word to guide them, to direct them. Uh, there in Mount Sinai, if you remember, um, God met Moses on the mountain, and he's revealing his word to guide his people. Um, and he told Moses that he would do this. Back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, he said, hey, when I call you to free those people, I'm going to bring you back to worship, and it's going to be amazing. And, and in chapter 19, uh, verse 18, um, I think I have it here. I'm going to... He said, now Mount, uh, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had ascended on it in fire and the smoke, uh, smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. We're at a situation where people are freaking out. Moses is going up and they're seeing fire fall from heaven on a mountain. The Shekinah glory is coming in. There's thunder, there's lightning. They had to consecrate themselves. And this section really is, is chapters 19 through 24, almost like a bookends or a preview of all the law that God would give the nation of Israel. Now, the whole law, Leviticus, really talks more in depth of that with 613 commandments that God would give to the nation, telling Moses, write these things down on a tablet, for they're holy and they're good, and give those to the people. And the Ten Commandments are like the centerpiece, the thesis, the statement, the, this thing that, that would really guide them. Now, one commentator, Larry Richards, he said this, we worship a God who has acted in history and who has revealed himself to us. Our God has defined himself by actions and explained himself in the Bible. Every other deity is a human invention. And this is what God wants to do as he's making much of his name by freeing these people, making them his people, giving them his word, guiding them that they, the nations would know and be blessed through these people that he truly is Yahweh, the true and living God. And so he's revealing who he is through these commandments. And so let's read and study together. Exodus chapter 20. We'll read all of the commandments, 1 through 17, and we'll, we'll look at some of them tonight. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have... No other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water and under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity that sin trespassed of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, 
For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who take his name in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall... uh, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your, uh, to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You are your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is with you are within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that we can look to your word, that you are a God that speaks, that is alive. And um, God, as we study through the Ten Commandments, would you give us revelation? Would you help us to see your heart, who you are from these words? Uh, Thank you, God, for guiding us, for directing us, for giving us your voice, your guidance, for being a God that's alive, that can speak. And when you speak, you bring forth life. And so I pray, God, as I speak and represent you and your kingdom now, eternal words from heaven that they would come to ears that would hear, hearts that would obey. Lord, that we would worship now with our minds to be able to understand who you are in a greater sense and love you even more. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your word. We pray that you do a special work tonight as we look to your word again. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Not for, but from. I want to develop that and dive into that before we get into the two, Ten Commandments because I think it's really important for us when we start this list to understand the heart, to understand the heart. Because before we get into the do's and do nots, we really need to understand the purpose of the law and um, its role in our lives. And Pastor Robin did a great job. It was like two weeks ago now. Seems like forever, right? Uh, Two weeks ago that he did a message on this, a great job sort of explaining the law and encompassing the law. There is these three sort of categories you can put the law in. You can put it in a civil law, guiding the nation, the governmental things, the ceremonial law, and we'll see that with the tabernacle and sacrifice. This was all leading to a sacrifice so that way we could see Christ as the Lamb of God sacrificing for our sins. And then there's the moral law. Do unto others as they would do unto you. Things that are actually eternal, transferable. And Romans 7 really talks a lot about this, how the law is good and it is holy. And uh, the Ten Commandments fall under this category called the moral law of God, are things that we would practice still as Christians today. Nine out of the Ten Commandments that we actually will study are in the New Testament as well. And so they're reiterated over and over and over again. But this principle of the New Covenant is reiterated over and over and over again. And you have to mention that before you study into to a, che- a checklist or to-do list. And so what I mean by not for, but from, it was a devotional I did this last week, but not for salvation, but from salvation. I want you to sort of picture and, and get in your mind why God is giving these people the role, these commandments, the role of the Ten Commandments and the law in our lives is that we would respond and know how to follow God and obey Him, okay? Um, Not that these would ever save us for salvation, 
for God's love, for approval. But from salvation, we can respond to God and obey Him out of love. And what's happening here is is a sweet meeting, and it's a beautiful worship service. God is meeting with Moses and the people. Ephesians is not a reward for good works, but it is the gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. The law reveals God's righteousness, His holiness, how good He is, and it demands righteousness, holiness, perfection. But it can never give that. And this is why Pastor Robin mentioned Galatians and Hebrews and Colossians and like Galatians 2.21 talk about this. Galatians 3.2 tells us that God doesn't give us his spirit and intimacy like a relationship because of the law, but rather it is what he has done and us trusting in Christ. And this law that he's going to give them is actually a step for them to trust in the living God, not just these rules. This is really important for us because even as Christians today, we can learn a whole bunch of principles, but not seek a person. And we have to understand we we do these things not for God's approval, but because we have God's approval. Not for his love, but because we are loved, we want to respond. We want to worship. And there is a gospel pattern going on right here in the middle of this text, right before we get into the very Ten Commandments. Look at verse 2 with me. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God wanted to remind them who he was and what he had done before he gets into the to-do list, the commands, the principles. Why? So that these commands would be a response and point to him. Not so that they would have to prove or earn, but he's saying, hey, you're no longer a slave. I did this. I came and met you, and here's now how I'm going to guide you, how you can worship, how you can love. And we need this reminder as God's people as well. We need God to remind us that we need to obey him out of worship and out of response, not for love. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Remember, we weren't slaves to Egypt, but Egypt is a picture of the world, and we were slaves to sin, snatched from darkness into his marvelous light. And and God says, listen, you were a people, but now you're my people. You were a whole, now you're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. For freedom, Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore. Stand firm because you are going to, as a Christian, lean on your own works, your own understanding, and want to go to principles and to-do list and mark it off a box rather than have intimacy with Christ. And do not submit against, again to the yoke of slavery. God wants to free us from a works-based mentality. And this is why the New Testament talks so much about the law and the purpose of it. And God right now is giving us an old covenant so that we can see we need a new covenant. He's giving us law so we can see we fall short and we need grace. But the law is good. It's holy. It's pure. It's right. The law, the Bible says, is like a tutor pointing us to Christ or like a mirror because it shows us compared to a holy God, who we are. In James chapter 2, verse 10, the Bible says that forever, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, meaning you break one of these laws, you're done. You're accountable for it all. 
The law is a mirror, and if you break the command, you break them all, and God knows this, and he wants to show the people their continual dependency on him. This is why, as Christians, we don't just throw away the law. The moral, oh, that's, that was old time. No, no. God wants you to depend on him over and over and over again. And Jesus came and said, I did not abolish the law and the prophets. No, I came to fulfill them, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He wants us to embrace this, to, to understand that he died for our sins, to free us from the slavery of the law. Christ came under the law to free us and to give us his righteousness, eternal life. And so here's what the Ten Commandments should do to you as a believer. They should be, there should be a great guilt when we study through the law of God. I mean, there just is. Because the Bible already told me that all of y'all are sinners. You're not perfect and neither am I. So if I go through the list and I even break one of these things, there should be great guilt and condemnation. But there should also be great joy and freedom as you look to Jesus through it. Because there is no condemnation in Christ. And he fulfilled the law. And he shows you, you need a savior. Now, it's interesting because Jesus came on the scene. They called him Messiah or Christ. That means anointed one. The one that would save. He actually tells us that's his name. That's the role he wants to do. But oftentimes you can lead a horse to water, but the horse has to drink, right? So what he's doing is just leading gently these people and letting them know, I'm your great savior. I did this. I did this. I love you. I brought you out. Here's how you can love me back. Here's how you can respond. Here's how you can see how holy I am and how holy and righteous I am and how much you need me. And now as followers of Jesus, our heart's desire should be following after Christ. We should want to obey his commandments because the Bible says, no, we're not longer slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness. He transforms our heart through the power of the gospel. And that is an internal work of the Holy Spirit that makes us born again. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are changed. We may even sin a little bit more after we get saved. But we're saved because it's not based off of our sin. It's based off of his righteousness. And he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He frees us from the power of sin. And we're able to be filled with the Spirit to please God and walk in his ways. And this is why Jesus has this beautiful picture. And he comes on the scene teaching in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Because I'm not, you're not going to have a heart of stone anymore written on tablets, but I'm going to give you my law in your heart. I'm going to transform you, a soft heart, one that would want to follow after me. And so a comprehensive level of these commandments are sort of divided into two parts. That's why this is part one, because I can't get through two parts. One part, the first four commandments, I want you to think about how their guidance or commandments are written for us so that we can love God. I just want you to think about that, man. As a guy, this is so helpful for me. I want my wife to just say, buy me this type of flower. I buy it because I want to express love. God wants you to love him and to know him. He made a way so that you can have a soft heart and know him through the gospel and even obey him and know his commandments. He's writing down doing a supernatural act so these people could respond and just know how to love him. And then he wants people to love other people. The second part, commands six through 10. And isn't this what Jesus expressed in teaching about the law in Matthew chapter 22, verse 35 through 40? You could sum up all the law in loving God and loving others. 
And if you look at these Ten Commandments, they're broken up in that way. They're directed to God, but then they're directed to other people. And God is gently, graciously, lovingly speaking to the people. God in Mount Sinai now is speaking to his people and revealing how they can love him. And in doing so, they will be blessed as they obey his word. And this is why in verse 1, it tells us our God speaks. It literally says, God spoke all these words saying, and then gets right into these commandments. Let us not forget this is God speaking. This is God speaking. These are not just suggestions. These are imperatives. These are commands. God wanted us to know these things. He gives us his word and wants us to know him and his word. That's why at the end of chapter 19, verse 25, Moses went up to the people and he told them. Moses is like going up and down, up and down, up. And he's actually communicating to God. And God is saying, now tell the people this. And he's going back, tell the people that. And he's going back and forth. And there is a, a relationship that is taking place. God spoke to Moses. He wanted Moses to write them down on tablets. And then the pattern is that he would give that to the people. And this is the pattern for Scripture. That God works and speaks through men and by the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, For no prophecy has ever, was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I, I hope that you know that when you read God's scripture, it was written so that you would know God and be able to love him to know his will, to understand him, to understand salvation. He did some amazing prophetic things and accuracy and historical things and worked in history so we can have a book written down so we can be guided. God's word is a light into our feet. It's a lamp that shines brightly. Our God speaks. Don't ever take that for granted. And what I mean by that is make sure you're taking time to listen to him. Be men and women of God's word. You have such a gift. Think about all the people and the, the, this story would go on generation after generation and, and the, they would be telling their kids and telling their kids and telling their kids. It's like, this is amazing. God met with us as a nation. This is amazing. God met with us. We all should be saying that every day. This is amazing. God met with us. We have his word. He wants to speak to us. He knows us. He loves us. He wants us to walk in his ways and, and he guides us and he cares for us. And he, he even tells us how to love him and to know him and to seek him and to love other people and, and the will of the Lord in this life until we meet with him face to face for all eternity. He just told me to trust in him today and believe in him and, and sacrifice this and obey here and do this. And when we do this, we're blessed and now there's full of joy and peace and love. We get this same experience that these people could have had by just going to God and reading his word and obeying. And we're going to see later on they're going to be tested and we are tested as well. God is, wants and desires to know people and what he's doing is pouring out his love towards this nation graciously to speak to them. And so let's look at the first four commandments as a guide on how to love God. Next week we'll cover the six other commandments on how to love others. And here's what I want to do. I want to sort of ask two questions as we walk through this, sort of a pattern, little mini devotions or Bible studies. I want to ask these two questions. What does this commandment mean? 
Okay? Pretty clear? But I want to take it a step further. What does this commandment uh, or this command teach us about God? Because remember, it's not just a principle, like do not lie, but what does that actually teach us about God as we study these things? Again, Larry Richardson, he said, on the surface, these commandments appear simple, yet the more we examine them, the more powerful and significant each one becomes. This is why we study God's word. This is why we want you to know God's word. This is why we esteem God's word. And as we come together and worship, we include his word because it does seem simple and profound, but this is how the Holy Spirit speaks. This is why I gave you those brochures so you can do a little bit deeper into the Ten Commandments. Uh, This is our third brochure, I think, out of the four of this book. Uh, And it's just a simple, helpful tool to understand it, to know it, to have some cross-references. Like we can have our hour-long Bible study here and it would not be enough. I know because I've done it many times. And it's not enough for me. It's not enough for you. We need to be men and women of God's word and to continue to study these things. Another commentator said, It has been said that the commandments are God's nature expressed in terms of moral imperatives. Let's try to find out and see what this teaches us about God. These commandments, what do they mean? What do they teach us about God? And so understanding these Ten Commandments are not only good for us, but good for us to know who God is. So command one, verse three, no other God. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Simple verse. I love what one commentator, Tony Myrna, said about this simple verse, this little line. This first commandment does away with atheism on one hand and pantheism or or polytheism on the other. It assumes that there is one true God and no other. You know, we live in a culture now that we have to actually say this, don't we? That there is only one and true living God. The Jewish people, they lived in a world with nations worshiping multiple gods. False gods, car gods, idols, demonic gods. There were all these things that people were worshiping and embracing instead of the true and living God. And God wanted to show to the nations that he was the one and only true God to be worshipped. Yahweh, the great I Am. Psalm 115 would tell us that, that Israel was to bear witness of the true and living God. And as they worshipped and obeyed his word, the nations would know and be blessed. Oh man, that, that's what it's like to worship that God? Oh, he's greater than all gods. Remember when he fought the 10 plagues, these other gods that the Egyptians elevated and he just totally trumped them, beat them down, freed his people. That was a part to show his glory, to show the nations, hey, I'm the only guy here. This is only about me. People were to see the fruit and the blessing in this nation and their lives as they worship God alone and be a witness of him as Jehovah. Now, the word before me, because this can be confusing. Like, you have no other gods before me. Wait, does that mean there are multiple gods? No. Before me can actually mean in opposition to me. In opposition to me. God wants our full devotion, our full worship, and not to worship other things besides him. This is why Colossians teaches us that Jesus is preeminent. He is the firstborn of all creation, not meaning he's the firstborn of many, but he is prioritized first. This is where we, he has his rightful place, King of kings, Lord of lords. There's no one that's before him, no one that compares to him. All other gods are false gods. 
Not true gods, not God creator. God wants us to worship him and him alone. And it's not like there's a a thousand other little gods and if you put God first and then all the other gods, that's okay. No, he's saying no one before me. This This is not a competition. If you're not following me, you're in opposition of me. And he directs his people over and over again. The great prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 45 verse 18 God would speak through Isaiah, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty, and He formed it in the inhabited. The Bible says, the Lord says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Don't have any other gods before me. There is no other. So what does this teach us about God? I'm going to try to go with the booklet that I gave you because I love how it gave us a little, little, little paraphrase or a little, little summary, a little sentence of that. They say, God is the creator and the Lord of the universe. He deserves our first loyalty. God is God. We should worship Him as such. And He tells us not to worship any other God because there are no gods besides Him. I love what David Guzik commentary sort of highlights and and marinates and brings this point he says these first few words god both reminded and taught israel essential facts and principles about who he is and his nature in this simple verse it teaches us that god is above nature remember people were worshiping the sun god the sea god god of infertility god of fertility god of this god of that so This teaches us that he is not merely a personification of fire. Because remember, he was in fire as a cloud. Oh, is that the the God of fire or the God of the clouds? No, no, no. He's not, not that. He's not the God of the wind or the God of the sun or any other created thing. He is creator. There are no other gods besides him. He made everything. And if you place someone as God, we'll get into command two. That's idolatry. God is personable, though. He is not a depersonalized force. He actually relates with us and communicates to man in an understandable way. God has a mind, a will, a voice, and so forth. He's personable. You can worship Him. You can know Him. There is no other God besides Him. God is good. He did good for Israel. And now does good for them in giving these commands and keep of keeping which not only pleases him, but is genuinely best for humanity. He's giving these guys these commands and speaking to them so that they would obey and be blessed. He's a good God. You shouldn't worship any other God besides him. And he's holy. He's different, set apart. He's different than those supposed other false gods that the pagans worship. He therefore also expects his people to be different. And so he's guiding them, giving them commands. This command is so important because if you follow this command right here, all nine of them will take place. You'll follow the rest. But we can't even, we can't even obey this command. And he's going to define it for us of why. A submissive and worshipful life unto the Lord that worships of Him alone is a powerful, incredible, fruitful life. This is what this command is saying. And this was on Jesus' lips when He got tempted by Satan in the wilderness. 
Satan said, you can have all this different stuff, all this blessing if you worship me. Now, we all know Satan is not no match to Jesus. This is not like they're two brothers. Jesus is creator. Satan is creation, a fallen angel, demonic thing. But, but yet people are allowed to worship him, allowed to walk in the ways of darkness. And so what was Jesus' response? Luke chapter 4, verse 8, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone you shall serve. Get behind me, Satan. And listen, this temptation is real. If it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to us to worship other false gods or even place yourself as God rather than Yahweh is a great temptation that we as humanity face because we are broken and we don't trust. We have a sin nature. And this is why command one and command two are so closely related. To worship God and God alone. For Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or you could fill in the blank. You can't serve God and sex. You can't serve God and going after status or power. You can't serve God and serve yourself. Our relationships, our false gods, our idols. And so the second command is like that, and it goes a little bit deeper, a little, little harder, a little, little bit more into this, this way of worship and what we're to do and not to do. In verses 4 through 6, the command is we're to have no idols. You shall not, verse 4, make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven alone or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, this command deals with how we as humans have idols. Idols. And it warns us against having the wrong object of worship and against worshiping in the wrong way. This is what this summary is. God tells us throughout his scripture over and over again, especially in Isaiah, like he sort of clowns them. He says idols are deaf, they're dead, and they're dumb. It literally says stupid in some translations. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Jeremiah 10.8, idols are both stupid and foolish, it says. The culture was full of carved idols, statues, not only in Egypt, but in Jesus' day. You read about it. Some scholars saying in Corinth, there were as many idols, if not more, than actually people. Shrines, worship. We see this now in the East. There's many people, even in the States, that worship idols, carved images, in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, Paul will go into that culture and his heart would break because he knew that that would not satisfy men and women to worship a dead, false thing. And I think that there can be a real danger in thinking that, well, this is command just is for that culture because, you know, there's no statues when we go into our house. But not so. Believer, 1 John chapter 5, the very end of that great book about love and how to love God. Verse 21 of chapter 5, he gives us a little warning. It's like his drop in the mic moment, his exclamation point on this love letter. He says, keep ourselves, keep yourselves from idols. 
That's it. Because he even knows we as Christians can have idols. We can esteem other things besides God. Why? Because idols aren't just carved images, but they're things in our heart that we esteem. Things that we put forth before God, that we value higher than God. You know what worship is? To give worth, to value. And oftentimes, even in our lives, we can give more worth to something over God. A good thing become, be, being a God thing be, can be a bad thing. It could be idolatry. Every time we make a, a, something a good thing, it's idolatry, greater than God. It could even be church, serving, family. Tony Murata said, everyone is a worshiper of someone or something. Idolatry is putting someone or something else in the place of God. Idolatry is exchanging the glory of the creator for the creation, leading to a life of ignorance and moral corruption, Romans 1 says. Idols are not just a pagan altar, but in the hearts of people. And you know the prophet Ezekiel chapter 14 would address this? Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 and 20 would say that these things, the work of the flesh, it would thrive up in us. The old theologian John Calvin would often say our hearts are idol factories. We just have a propensity to just make things bigger than God. To walk by sight and not by faith. And there is a great temptation for us today to have idols in our life. And God does not want that for us because, listen, He's a good God. He knows that idols, false gods, demonic powers, and principalities will not satisfy your life. And this is why the text says He's a jealous God. David Guzik said, God is jealous in the sense that He will not accept being merely added to your life. He insists on being supreme and does this out of love. Just like a husband being jealous for his wife. He knows that if we worship Him, we'll be blessed. We're going to see there's a covenant going on. He's giving the constitution. Do this and you will be blessed. But if you don't do this, you'll be cursed. It's interesting because in that text it says, sin or iniquity of your fathers visits the, and affects uh, the children of a generation after a generation. There's fruit when you walk in sin, and it is not good. The Bible says that when you walk in sin, you reap corruption. And oftentimes, especially the third or fourth generation, they would all be in one household. And imagine if a father is walking in wickedness that opposes God and hates him, how that would affect a family. But then it says, but I am a God of love, showing love to thousands. And if you actually look at that word, it's thousands of generations, thousand generations. Those that turn to me, I'll pour out my spirit. I'll give you my love. I'll be with you. I'll walk with you faithfully. But if you oppose me, it's not just going to affect your life. It's going to affect your son, your daughter, your wife, your family, your friends, your community, your job, and those beyond and go for it. Go, for, go after you. And so it's more than that God is jealous of us. We're not on his statue. It's, it's, the text really says he's jealous for us. Other translations, you can even think about this word as being zealous. He wants the best for us. This is why he's commanding this for us. Because he knows that we rebel. He deserves our worship alone. And it's for his glory. And when we do that, we receive good. 
God is a God of love, and this is why in verse 6, he shows steadfast love to thousands of those that love him and keep his commands. And isn't this what Jesus taught in John chapter 4, that, that the Father desires us to worship him in spirit and in truth? The way that he reveals to be worshipped, not the way that we want to worship him. That's what a carved Im- image is. Our imagination making an object saying that it's God. And God's like, no, I'm God. I existed before you. I made you. I'm going to reveal to you who I am. This is how you're supposed to worship me. He wants us to worship him the way he's been revealed to us through faith and not sight. Through his son, whom he was well pleased, listen to him, he told the disciples, and to his word, and when we get off on just doing our own thing, maybe not even adult, like carved image, but maybe, oh, well, we want to worship God this way or do that. No, it, we have to understand God is directing the people how to worship. And we can do this all the time. We are to reject every idea that God is not rooted in his self-revelation in Scripture. We need to search Scripture to understand God and his terms and what he reveals to us. It's interesting because speaking later of the Israelites um, and their experience on Mount Sinai, Moses wrote this in Deuteronomy chapter 4.12, And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. David Guzik says this establishes the principle that the worship of God was to be word-based, not image-based. The way that God even is revealing himself reveals to us how we should worship through hearing his word and responding and trusting him by faith, not having an object, which we're going to see the nation fall into and worship a cow. So what does this teach us about God? Well, God is spirit. He's bigger and more powerful than any representation. You can't put him in like in a little box or a carved image. He wants to wants us to look to him to worship him alone in the ways that he's told us and he wants us to look to his son who is the way, the truth, and the life and no one will come to the Father except through him. He has told us he is the exact image, the imprint, the radiance of his glory and we're to look to him and worship him. And if we look to another God, that is idolatry, that is false, and that is commanded not to do so because he will not satisfy. No other God will satisfy you This is why at the end of Revelation, where this invitation comes to people, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. God wants to satisfy you. Don't go to another God. Don't have idols. And don't take his name in vain. Don't misuse his name. Understand who he is. Verse 7, you shall not take the Lord... Uh, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now this command is often broken into three common ways. Commentary said this, profanity, frivolity, and hypocrisy. Profanity is when you say Jesus Christ is like a cuss word. You know what I'm saying? You've probably heard that before, been offended by that. Now the word of God actually tells us not to cuss, or to have crude talk come out of our mouths. All cussing. Ephesians 4, 29. 5, 4. I, when I was a young teenager trying to get around it, I'd be like, well, 
Well, what's a cuss word? In this culture, it's a cuss word. In that culture, it's not. Great, you live in this culture. It's a cuss word, so don't do it. You know what I'm saying? And I find it interesting also that people use Jesus Christ as a cuss word and not Muhammad. Not another name or ideology or religion. Proving to the fact that his name is powerful and something to be used because it actually is real and he is the true and living God. So people could profane God's name by just misusing it, using it as a cuss word, using it inappropriately, or this word, I'd never really heard of it before, frivolity. It means, uh, and forgive me if I'm saying it wrong, but it means using the name of God in a superficial or stupid way, or a lack of seriousness. OMG. Y'all hear that before, right? Oh my God, people say that. Oh. Okay, you're not really understanding what you're saying. You're not giving respect, reverence, honor to that name. And Proverbs says when we give reverence and honor to God's name, it's the beginning of all wisdom. And what's happened in the culture is if we're not going to go front, Satan wants to attack God front by making it a cuss word and demeaning him that way, he's going to go side and just be like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. Just don't take God's name seriously. Just say it however you want to. Just misuse the name of God. But then there's this last piece, which I think is probably more appropriate for us as believers, hypocrisy. How would we use God's name, misuse God's name with hypocrisy? Well, it's claiming the name of God, but acting in a way that disgraces his name. And this is something I think that actually this commandment is more about. You see, a name in the Bible, it represents a label, a nature. The name of a person or thing was linked to the essence of a person. So when Jesus told his disciples to pray in his name, like John chapter 14, he's not saying, just say, in Jesus' name, amen. He's saying literally in that verse, pray according to my will and my word and my nature and everything that I'm about and have that authority and that claim and you will have victory because it represents me, my kingdom, and I will say yes to that. My name is powerful. My will is powerful. My word is powerful. Who I am is powerful. So when we take God's name in vain, we are linking his name inappropriately, are behaving in such a way that doesn't represent him, doesn't represent his nature. And this Hebrew word in vain here, it occurs 53 times in the Old Testament. And in each occurrence, it describes something that is without substance or something unreal. This commandment isn't really about although often taken in this way about swearing, it's actually acting as though God is unreal and doesn't count in your life. That could be a representation of misusing God's name. Christian, have you ever acted like God is not real in your life, in your everyday life, in the situation where you have crisis? This command is to us as believers to never act as if God is not relevant to the situation we're going through. Don't misuse his name, his nature. He's there. He's revealed himself. You know he's a God of love. When we act as if God is without substance or unreal, we break this commandment. And isn't this what Jesus taught us? To revere the holy name of God, to honor him for our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What does this teach us about God? Well, that God's name is holy. It's powerful. It's glorious. 
We need to treat God in His name with respect. We need to live as though God is real and not be a practical atheist. I get that word from a book called uh, Pastor Greg Rochelle. He wrote a book that's pretty good. It's called Christian Atheism. A Christian atheist is someone, he says, who believes in God but lives as though he doesn't exist. If you're doing that, you're, you're treating God's name in vain. God's name is so holy, so powerful, so glorious that we should walk in his ways and obey him. Again, one commentary said about this, people who have publicly declared themselves to be followers of God are to exalt God's reputation by living in a way that honors him. Or like the apostle Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Don't misuse his name. Don't misuse his name. God can and should be honored with our lives. Paul says it's a reasonable act of worship. Lastly, finally, the fourth command. Rest on the Sabbath. Verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in it is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, because of this, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Rest on the Sabbath. Now this word Sabbath, we've talked a lot about it. We've been brought up. The first time it's mentioned is actually a few chapters back when bread came down from heaven. It's Shabbat. It's this, uh, mean, this word that literally means to cease or to stop. You cease and stop work. But it also means to rest or to delight, and it has this implication of worship. I find this is a very great framework for a great Sabbath, to stop, to rest, to delight, and to worship. Now, Pete Scazzaro, in a book, Emotionally Healthy Leader, he has this wonderful chapter on the Sabbath that I've learned to embrace a sort of a definition of Sabbath for my own self. He says Sabbath is a... Um, I think I have it. Sabbath is a 24-hour block of time in which we stop work, enjoy rest, practice delight, and contemplate God. Or that other word could be worship God. We're to rest. This commandment is based out of creation. Verse 11. God even rested. He worked six days, rested on the seventh, and it tells people to follow his ways, his example. Remember on the Sabbath and practice it because he is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is God and we are not. And this is a practical function to teach the people that he will take care of them. He can rule with us working or without us working. He is God and we are not. As we practice the Sabbath, we understand that. We worship him. But it's interesting because the Sabbath is also not just connected to creation. In Deuteronomy, when the Old Testament gives us these Ten Commandments again, the words are changed a little bit. Moses reminds the people in Deuteronomy, and he sort of models the, this commandment after God's provision in bringing them out of Egypt. The focus is more of how God saves and how he redeems. So on one end, when you practice Sabbath, you get rest, but on the other end, you see God's redemptive work and restoration work to give you rest, and the focus is how he is Savior, and he can work even in your life as you do nothing. Now, this should be helpful for us, 
Because we know the Sabbath day was a picture of what was to come in Christ. For the Bible tells in the New Testament, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 say, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Many people ask me, well, should we observe the Sabbath today? I would say yes. Practically, it's a wise thing to do, to not push it, to obey this command even before it was modeled, before the law came. But it's not just a day that we should practice off a to-do list and stop working. It needs to be a lifestyle of rest in Christ, of worship in Him. Because if you just stop working and don't go to God, then that's just not the point. That's how we get our rest. In fact, the early church chose the first day of the week, Sunday, rather than Saturday, which was a typical Sabbath day, for their worship and their rest. They made it a day about Christ and His gospel. And many still worship what was called the Lord's Day, following this pattern from the early church found in Acts 27 or 1 Corinthians 16 too. One commentator said the Jewish Sabbath came at the end of six days and spoke of a rest to come. The Christian Sunday comes out of the beginning of the, the week, symbolizing rest that comes from Jesus has already been won for those who trust in him. You need to include worship, contemplation, seeking God and delighting in his grace, or it truly isn't the Sabbath. The Sabbath should teach us that once again, we work from a place of rest and response. That this is a good gift from God, and it's not rooted in we work hard and we rest. No, we rest, and from that place, we then work. As Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 27 through 28, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. It's a gift, not a whole bunch of rules. Not just something we check off. He allows us to Sabbath because he's gracious to us. Tony Miranda said, You need a Sabbath. It is rooted in creation and redemption. Some may argue over the day, but no one should argue over the principle. The Sabbath is God's gift to us. It benefits us to keep it, and it helps us to anticipate the final rest to come. What does this teach us about God? Well, that God values rest, spiritual refreshment for you and me. A time where his people would worship and do something so countercultural just to trust in his name that they would not misuse. He values spiritual refreshment so much so that he sent his son, Jesus, to die for us, to free us from the law so that we would know and enjoy him for all eternity. Because the Bible says that when we look to this law, it brings condemnation. It's a mirror. It's telling us we fall short but God who is rich in his mercy and grace has made a way for us to enter into a right relationship with him, to enjoy rest in him. And so let's end our service thinking about that. These four laws and how to love God. As we close, let's think about how God brought salvation by his grace. The law was given in the Old Testament, but we also have the New Testament, this new covenant that Jesus established. Because he wanted us to see our need for him. That's how amazing he is. He would establish these principles so that way we would know we're guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life. And so he tells and institutes this new 
new situation, this new communion, this new covenant I give unto you. My body will be beaten and broken for you. My blood shed for you. That he would go and be that perfect sacrifice, not throwing away the law and these commandments, but fulfilling them so that we don't have to go to these things to be saved. We can go to him to be saved. And he tells us as a church now, now establish your heart in this grace, this new covenant. Don't just throw away the law, but now if you love me, obey me. Repent of your sin. Turn to me. Be filled with the Spirit and walk in newness of life. Just like the Israelites, they were to bear witness of who God was and be a witness to the world. We, his church now, are to be witnesses of who God is and to be light and salt in our culture and our world today. So let's pray and let's respond. Jesus, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you, God, that we can close by taking communion. And we just bless your name, Lord. We thank you for this law, this word that we can come and know you, God, and not based off of this to-do list, but based off the person of Christ. Lord, would you prepare our hearts for communion as we just think about your great sacrifice. We know that even in these four commandments, we break them. We don't often go to you for our rest, or we, Lord, live in hypocrisy at times, but we thank you that your word says you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and we just want to declare, Lord, that we need you in this place, that we love you, and we, want to, and we want to worship and respond because of the sacrifice you did on the cross. May you continue to woo our hearts as we study your word and worship you together in this community in this church. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Hi, this is Pastor Daniel Williams at Redemption Church in Delray Beach. Thank you so much for listening to that message. We pray it was an encouragement. It was a blessing to you as we love to pursue and to proclaim Jesus together. And so no matter what you're listening, whether it be YouTube or our podcast, you can go to more resources at redemptiondb.com and even partner with us in ministry to pursue and to proclaim Jesus. God bless you. And thank you so much for listening.